Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Big hour coming your way. The bottom of the hour, Jennifer Griffin joins us about some worry that I have and she might be hearing, and I want to get the latest from the Pentagon with the president blowing out the top echelon of Pentagon officials that might have been standing in his way. Is he planning on pulling all our troops out of South Korea, out of Afghanistan precipitously, and just turning it over to the Taliban? That would be terrible. I want to find out about that. Also, we'll continue to see who's going to be our next president. Uh, While watching all the other breaking news today on tap, uh, the president's going to have lunch with the vice president. We're not invited. Uh, And the secretary of state will meet with the secretary of treasury. We're not invited. But we do know uh, at some point we are going to hear from Leader McCarthy. He's going to have his weekly press conference. And Dr. Fauci later on today and Dr. Collins participate in a conversation with Dr. Lucino Barrio, a member of the Biden Coronavirus Task Force. So they are talking lockdown again in America. Forget it. That is a no-go zone. We tried that once. It didn't work. Uh, don't tell me that Europe did it right. They're in, they could not be worse. Uh, and Sweden... Did it targeted? They're in the same spot that we're in. Uh, let's be honest. The vaccine's going to save us. In the meantime, do we know? Do we have to destroy our lives? I don't think so. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. If you look at new diagnoses of cancer plummeting, the only explanation is that we're going to see this data play out in the coming year or two and realize that lockdowns are not a good national strategy. Now, Absolutely. Dr. Marty uh, McCarty talking about that today. COVID-19 leading to lockdown redux. Where are these power uh, power mad policy politicians? When are they going to realize they just don't work? And I'll tell you some interesting information about Monday's vaccine announcement. Number two. President-elect Joe Biden's win still has not been ascertained, but he is plugging along with his agenda tonight, tapping his longtime aide Ron Klain to be his chief of staff. Really, uh, Jackie Heinrich reporting on something we're beginning to see. Uh, we'll get on a daily basis. Uh, Biden's on civil war begins to service as he names the chief of staff. And we Google his baggage. I mean, background on Ron Klain as the liberal lobbying begins for positions of power. Black Lives Matter leadership uh, and the loony left begin to make their demands to Joe. Number one. It remains the view of the, of the Trump campaign that this election is not over. As we speak to you today, Joe Biden has been certified the winner in exactly zero states. So, no, this election is not over. The battle plan is mapped out. The Trump team details their multi-state legal fight for a vote count everyone trusts. Where, what are their chances of prevailing? What about the legal fight? So here we are. Here we are right now. Uh, the president uh, will have to fight against the clock. 
1120, Pennsylvania certifies. On 1123, Michigan certifies. On 1130, Arizona certifies. And Wisconsin on the first. Then it's over. If the president can't find some way, and Georgia is right after that, find some way to let everybody know that there's something systemic wrong, uh, he will go down. And he'll be reluctant. I don't know how he's going to handle it. I don't see him showing up the inauguration. But it'll be over. Tim Murtaugh is doing the fighting. Cut one. It remains the view of the, of the Trump campaign that this election is not over. As we speak to you today, Joe Biden has been certified the winner in exactly zero states. And as I know you all remember, the Real Clear Politics polling average was held up as the gold standard during the election. Everyone pointed to the RCP average. Well, if you go to the RCP website right now, it will show Joe Biden with 259 projected electoral college votes. That is short, obviously, of 270. So, no, this election is not over. So in Arizona, they keep getting closer and closer just by counting the votes, not by protesting. They're at 11,000. That was like 80,000 at one point. 11,000 of taking the lead in Arizona. Uh, In Michigan, 145,000 seems out of reach. Nevada, 36,000. Pennsylvania, 53,000. And Georgia, 14,000. They are going to recount in Wisconsin. They're going to recount in Georgia. We don't know if it's going to turn over anything, but we know this. Each state has a different strategy. Mark Bronovich noted that Trump would need to be named. Mark Bronovich is the official in Arizona. He says that there's 50,000 votes yet left. If Trump wants to win, he needs 65 percent of the remaining votes in Arizona. We'll see. Uh, Fox News uh, says in Arizona they found out a judge has set a five-hour hearing today to listen to oral arguments regarding a Trump campaign lawsuit in Maricopa County. Say workers were only rejected uh, votes. They think it's going to add up, and every little bit matters. Uh, They also looked over in Arizona at the shrinking deficit, and they see other areas in which they can work the fringes and maybe get on top. In Georgia, uh, we know about the recount. They're also manually going to do it, so they're supposed to get that in two weeks. We'll see where that goes. In Michigan, they have to have this. uh, Melissa Carone has come up. She's a whistleblower, and her attorney, David Klauman, provided an exclusive inside look at the fraud claims there. So uh, they say they have witnessed in Michigan some ugly things going on. Uh, in fact, here's a little of what she was saying. This is Melissa Carone. She is a uh, she was on with Lou Dobbs last night and talked about what she saw in Detroit. Cut 16. So I was there during their day shift and their night shift. Um, the city provides the workers with food for their shift. Well, they only had enough food for one-third of their workers. So that is the reason why they were claiming that these vans were were brought in. But these vans did not have food taken out of them. So their claim was the vans were full of ballots. Cut 17. I never saw anything being brought out of the vans. I know that whatever was being brought out of the vans was being brought out of the back of the vans. But um, I was not allowed over in that area at all. But the vans were definitely not big enough to be carrying enough food for two-thirds of those workers. Well, and that's where she thinks the problem was. Cut 18. I absolutely did. Um, I uh, confronted my boss, and he told me that he doesn't want to hear it. He didn't want to hear it. He said, it is not our job to be running their election. We are here to assist with IT. 
Wow. Uh, so that's what they're going to be exploring at today. And they do have a whistleblower. I don't know how many votes. It's 145,000 votes. That is a lot. In Nevada, 36,870 down. Uh, Fox News is looking at this. Today is the final day for Nevada's counties to count ballots as the lead counties uh, start to widen. Uh, it looks like Biden's league is, lead is getting bigger as they count uh, Clark County, which concludes Las Vegas. Meanwhile, the former attorney general, Adam Laxalt, says a lot of dead people are voting. A lot of these ballots, he used to be attorney general, a lot of these uh, unsolicited ballots that went to people's houses are from people out of state who have since moved, but people are filling them out and sending them in. And now they're making him the bad guy. Cut 19. And I've been attacked viciously by the sitting attorney general and other people and, and for being and somehow, um, you know, attacking our system. And last time I checked, I served both in the Navy and in Iraq and was a top law enforcement officer. All I want to do is what you want. I want to put a spotlight on this system because the bottom line is there is fraud. I don't know how wide scale it is. We keep being told, well, all the fraud will be investigated. By who? There's no investigative body that goes in independently and actually investigates elections. This is why we have this mess. I'm going to take calls in a second, one 866 And as you know, Carl Rove's probably the smartest guy in politics, and he's a realist. And he said this in the Wall Street Journal today. He said, Trump has to prove systematic fraud with illegal votes in the tens of thousands. There is no evidence of that so far. Unless some emerges quickly, the president's chances in court will decline precipitously. U.S. politics remains polarized and venomous. Closing out this election will be hard, but necessary step towards restoring some unity and political equilibrium. Once his days in courts are over, the president should do his part to unite the country by leading a peaceful transition and letting grievances go. I don't think that's likely. I am not sure. I know the president's crushed. He hates losing uh, more than probably anyone I know. Uh, One of the things he doesn't do, he doesn't like to apologize. He never admits that he lost. He doesn't lose much. Even when he goes bankrupt, he moves on. So we'll see where this goes. Uh, At the bottom of the hour, I don't love what he's doing at the Pentagon. It kind of worries me when it comes to our overall um, security. But when you look at the big picture on the election, I think the other thing to keep in mind, too, that's affected everyone along with the election, turning the page, is what's going on with the coronavirus. We know in just about all 50 states it's rising. We know this is especially challenging in the Midwest. And we also know that these lunatic politicians are starting to lock us down again. I'm not sure if these doctors think they can do it. Uh, But I know that we can't handle it. It does not work. It is not effective. But listen to the czar, Governor Andrew Cuomo. Listen to this maniac. Cut 40. I needed him to help New York. That was my job. If I wasn't governor of New York, I would have decked him. Uh, Period. I mean, he was attacking me. He was attacking my family. He was uh, anti-Italian. He was uh, every nasty thing, you know. You, if I take away that word governor for 24 hours, I would have had a field day with him. Right. Tough guy. Wow. That's he's really tough. Uh, Name one time that he had a fight in his life. He talks tough, does nothing. Uh, He's totally ineffective. And the arrogance, the dislocated part of his ego that wrote a book about the pandemic when we lead the country, maybe the world, in any single state with more deaths. Between six and 11,000 seniors died in nursing homes. So. 
Uh, are we going to be looking at a lockdown? Andrew Cuomo's putting out some ridiculous words that you can't have more than 10 people in your house. Uh, he says, I'll thre- uh, gyms will close soon. they got to close by 10. Restaurants got to close by 10. We also know we have this stupid rule that if you go and have a drink, you have to have something to eat, as if that's going to mean anything, as if the virus is only going to take, uh, take off after 10 o'clock. And he's telling us not to have Thanksgiving. Really? Meanwhile, Anthony Fauci knows lockouts, lockdowns don't work. Here's what he just said on Good Morning America. I don't know. We would like to stay away from that, Robin, because there is no appetite for locking down uh, on the American public. But I believe that we can do it without a lockdown. I, I really do. I mean, sometimes when people talk about the measures that I'm suggesting we double down on, they equivocate that and say that, well, that that uh, makes that not uh, a lockdown. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure what he means. Uh, he governs by interview. But Anthony Fauci knows it doesn't work. Remember they told us in Germany they locked down and look at the payoff. The payoff is uh, they are locked down again. They said if we lock down now for a month, we'll have a Christmas. That's a promise. In Italy, the numbers are ratcheting up again. They said, look at the Italians. They enjoyed this great summer because they sucked it up in the spring. They're back flat on their back. And I don't blame the Italians. I don't blame the British. I don't blame the Germans. I don't blame the Swedish. They're all trying to do the same thing. No one's to blame. But please do not have people uh, sacrifice their lives, their school, uh, their teen years they're never going to get back. Uh, their careers that they'll never be able to get back on track, Uh, the real estate, the commercial real estate, the transportation, all that comes to a grinding halt. Suicide ratchets up, psychological well-being goes through the roof, people stop going to the doctor, all because you lock down to hide from a virus that has no interest in looking out for your welfare. At least the people in charge should do the same. And think about it before you just say, everyone, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this. It didn't work the last time. The vaccine is around the corner. That's what you do. You bide your time until it happens, but you don't hover in place. That can't happen. one 408 7669 I'll take your calls when we come back. Then welcome in Jennifer Griffin from the latest at the Pentagon, and then finish up with more to know. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Challenging conventional thought and wisdom. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. 
breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. The road to socialism does not run through Georgia. Georgia, then we change America. Well, you know what? That's right. No way. Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, you're not going to take Georgia. It's ours. And they have not won a runoff election. Uh, I think there's seven of eight. They, they've lost seven of eight. Uh, member Saxby Chambliss was the senator from Georgia. He won the other uh, runoff. So Republicans usually do well, but it's a brand new year. I mean, Georgia was always a very reliable red state. That was Kelly Loeffler, obviously, and she was appointed by Brian Kemp, even though the president wanted Doug Collins. And she beat Doug Collins in a runoff, so she's going to go against a very flawed candidate who's closer to Reverend Wright than he, she is to, he, to a moderate Democrat. So I think Kelly Loeffler uh, will come in uh, favored. And I think Senator Purdue will come in favored. Hopefully they'll lock it out because you're not going to believe the billions that'll pour, millions that'll pour in there. I don't think multi-billion, especially after they got burned in Kentucky and got burned in South Carolina. Uh, Phil, listening on 94.3, the talker in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Hey, Phil. Hi, how you doing, Brian? Um, my main concern right now is that tens of millions of uh, GOP voters feel dejected and really honestly feel like a lot of fraud has been committed here. And I'm just worried that the the army that Trump raised, you know, that in this last election isn't going to show up in Georgia. They're just going to feel like their vote doesn't count. That's how I'm feeling right now. Um, but, but in a way, Phil, it you, you can't say that. I mean, look at what's happening in the Senate. There's 12, excuse me, in the House. There's 12 seats out there. I think the Republicans have 204. I mean, Nancy Pelosi got shellacked. Look at what happened in the Senate. Joni Ernst, not supposed to win. She wins. Susan Collins, not supposed to be close. Wins by six. Look what happens to Purdue. Uh, excuse me, Tillis in North Carolina wins. Uh, you have uh, McSally lost, but she was uh, she was going against a popular astronaut in the area. And then you have uh, Doug Collins, excuse me, Doug Jones, who lost in Alabama. So you won almost every state house. What you lost is, looks like you lost is, is uh, the presidency, but a lot has to do with your state. Did you see things in, uh, in your area, in your town that worried you? Brian, just the way they, they changed the rules so Biden would win. It, it's like, you know, Donald Trump had to run 100 yards for a touchdown, but they made it so Joe Biden only had to run 70 yards for a touchdown. So they're saying there's no fraud, but they changed the rules so Biden would win, you know? I know. Uh, I hear you. And the president called it out. And, it, you know, but if there was if they just said we're going to do mail in balloting, unsoliciting in New Jersey and Nevada and Pennsylvania, I'd say, wow, that's cheating. But they said in a pandemic in which they're telling everyone to stay home, in which they're boarding up their buildings, they said, I don't think you should be forced to go vote. Now, in Florida, they told everyone to go vote. Uh, in New York, we told everyone to go vote. You could do it. Uh, you can go ask for a ballot. But in a lot of these states, they just flooded the zone with these ballots. And that's why you have 167 million people voting. But it was a perfect storm. You had a 78-year-old candidate who's terrible on the stump. And he stayed in his basement and said, I'm being responsible. 
out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You have a pandemic they told us was controllable. The scientists can't control it. And again, we're almost at the place where we were when it first started. So all these things worked against the president. And he still amassed more votes than any Republican ever. So I understand the frustration, but it's not like the Republicans didn't show up. John, or, or get results. John, listen on WNDB in 93.5. John. Yes. Good morning. Uh, I'd like to uh, ask, or say a couple of things here. The media, they're scaring people with this deal over the uh, smooth transition and uh, security of the country. I think that uh, Donald Trump should be out speaking and uh, talking about uh, how the transition takes place. How the Constitution determines in a couple of weeks, the in a week States or two, he, he 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 might, and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't need to give the country a, a a primer on how to transfer power. We all know it, but he he wants to make sure that there's no path forward, and I can't blame him. Uh, but John, I'd be surprised if in a week we're still talking about lawsuits. When we come back, Jennifer Griffin on what's happening at the Pentagon. What does it mean for Afghanistan? What does it mean about the Iranian deal and all the peace deals? Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I don't believe it. I think he's been a good commander-in-chief. We killed the number two in al-Qaeda about two weeks ago uh, in Afghanistan. To trust the Taliban to police... Al-Qaeda and ISIS would be insane. Uh, Our presence in South Korea is a buffer against China and keeps North Korea in check. Uh, Having a troop reduction in uh, Afghanistan makes sense. Pulling out makes no sense. Radical Islam is very present in Afghanistan. Our troops over there and insurance policy against another 9-11. I don't believe this. I think the president's been too good of a commander-in-chief to do something like that at the end. So I'll believe it when I see it, and uh, I'm confident he will keep America safe. So even amongst his friends, people are fearful that uh, the president of the United States is so angry at the Pentagon uh, for slow-walking the withdrawal of troops from Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan. That's why he decapitated, got rid of Secretary of Defense Esper, put somebody else in there, uh, brought in uh, Colonel McGregor, who's a constant critic of our war in Afghanistan. And now they're in positions of power, along with General uh, Anthony Tata. So people are wondering, are you just going to precipitously just pull out all our troops out of South Korea because of money issues, who's paying? And then Afghanistan, joining us now, a woman that knows uh, the region as well as anybody, Jennifer Griffin, Fox News' national security correspondent. Jennifer, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me. So, Jennifer, how, how, how real is the worry in the Pentagon? I would say I've never felt such anxiety at the at the senior levels of the Pentagon. It's per, it's permeated the buildings. There's a real sense of 
of instability that that has caused a great deal of concern. This kind of change in the last, uh, you know, 70 days before a transition occurs is is really not sending the right signals overseas to um, U.S. enemies as well as U.S. allies. The real concern is that nobody seems to know if there is strategy behind these changes, whether it is petty, vindictive, you know, uh, taking people out who had, had disagreed with the president at various times. I mean, if you talk about Mark Esper, uh, what I've learned from my reporting in recent days is that really it was no secret that the president was furious with Mark Esper back in the June-July timeframe when he and others stood up and blocked the president from invoking the Insurrection Act to send U.S. troops into the streets to put down the protest this summer. He did not like when Mark Esper went out alone and stood at the Pentagon uh, in the Pentagon briefing room and told reporters that he opposed using the Insurrection Act. He did that without consulting with the White House. So the president had wanted to fire him long ago. But there were uh, there were more immediate instances that uh, the president seems to have been convinced to uh, essentially decapitate uh, the top of the Pentagon as well as some of the intel, uh, putting people into cer- certain intel positions, because basically there was a meeting about about a month ago in the White House, where uh, there are some members of his team, particularly Rick Grinnell, who would like to declassify certain intelligence reports that they believe will show something uh, that will exonerate the president in terms of the Russia investigation. That piece of intel is deeply classified because it shows sources and methods that the NSA and others do not want to reveal, and it could get people killed. And people that I've spoken to at the highest level say that that intel is very thin at best. But the president uh, is, you know, hoping to place people in positions of power in the intel community who will help him and John Radcliffe uh, declassify that. But that's one of the reasons that uh, Esper was fired. The question is, do the people that he has sent over, if you look at the connections that they all have, they all are Iran hawks. Many of them have special forces and intel uh, sort of um, counterterrorism backgrounds that suggest sort of tactical, um, they've worked with tactical units in the past. What is the end game? Many of them have spoken out against uh, the war in Afghanistan and want to pull troops out. You mean the new guys? They're Iran the hawks, and they're and they are, and they're four pulling out of Afghanistan. And not just Afghanistan. If you look at at Colonel McGregor, he has talked about pulling troops off the Korean Peninsula, I know. pulling troops out of it's Syria whacked. and Iraq. Crazy. This would be extremely destabilizing. You and I have talked for the last. 15 years since I was serving in the Middle East, Brian, of of course, everyone would like to bring troops home from the Middle East. Nobody wants to be in Afghanistan a day longer than necessary. But you do that overnight and you create vacuums. And that's when you get a new ISIS, whatever ISIS 3.0 is going to be. You have to do these things deliberatively. And right now, the in Afghanistan and with the there, there are very the president really jeopardizes uh, ruining a legacy that that if you look back, he will have funded the military in a way that, that very few presidents have in the past. He rebuilt the readiness under his watch, has uh, returned to a level that planes are not falling out of the skies and they're not cannibalizing planes. To uh, And he's going to jeopardize all of that if he allows adventurism at the top levels of the Pentagon. And the problem is it doesn't look like there's a strategy. A lot of these individuals have their own uh, sort of 
pet projects that they might want to pursue. It's hard to say whether that this is just resume padding or whether there's some larger plan, but it has created a great deal of, it's very unnerving to people who have served their life for decades in the right. military and, ha and are trying to keep stability in this transition period. Listen, I talked to Lindsey Graham last night and I put him on television today talking about that. He's friends with the president. You know that. But he cannot pretend as if that's a good move. He cannot pretend that the precipitous pullout of our, of our special forces in Syria was a good move uh, and leaving the Kurds out to dry. But what he can say, and I think you can appreciate more than most, is what's happened in the Middle East over the last three months uh, with the UAE, Bahrain, and now Sudan recognizing Israel's right to exist and now setting up trade between them. And then seeing what's happening with Saudi Arabia possibly as as foul as uh, as uneven as Saudi Arabia's leadership is, we are united in saying that Iran is the issue and Israel is not. And the president is, could walk away with high fives in all those areas, but that could be jeopardized by the next administration. But it also could be jeopardized by how the president leaves here. Correct. These next 70 days are crucial in terms of securing that legacy for the Abraham Accords. The Abraham Accords also bring with them a, a large number of arms sales to uh, countries that we've not previously sold things like F-35s to the United Arab Emirates. There are weapons that are going to Israel, the massive ordnance penetrators that Congress has, is, has signed off on. Uh, there, there was thought put into how to stabilize and reorient uh, the balance of power in the Middle East against Iran to to precipitously pull troops out of either Iraq, Syria, or Afghanistan would be destabilizing, and it would be sending the wrong signals to actors in the Middle East. Uh, the, the, the administration needs to be speaking with a clear voice, both at the Pentagon and from the National Security Council and from the White House, to not necessarily give a green light to Israel to, to strike Iran. Uh, you know that there is great uh, concern in Israel at the highest levels because Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu was no secret, had, did not have a good relationship with the Obama-Biden administration. Terrible. He did not agree Terrible. with the JCPOA or the engagement with Iran. He is very nervous about a Biden administration coming in on January 20th. If somebody is not paying attention at the Pentagon or at the White House and sending clear signals to Israel not to strike Iran's nuclear program right now, that that would be destabilizing. This is this is a very dangerous period and mixed signals. You remember back when a U.S. ambassador in Iraq sent the wrong signal to Saddam Hussein. He invaded Kuwait and we're still in the Middle East 30, 40 years later because right. of that mis diplomatic mistake. Mistakes can have consequences and people could die. This is not a time to be to be uh, messing around at the Pentagon. Very true. And I, and I will say this. He hasn't done anything yet besides change leadership. So yeah, we're but projecting. Yeah, very big changes, Brian. I'm sorry that these four people who they sent over there and firing a defense secretary willy-nilly without an explanation, it, these, this is not a stabilizing group of people that he chose to put over there. These are people who have been on the record talking about uh, pulling troops out suddenly from places there and and they are war hawks on Iran and I, I'm sorry that is not a, si a signal to the world of stability you got it uh, but the other thing is I worry about is if it is the Biden administration coming in and it looks like it is 
I worry they're going to try to fire up that, that nuclear deal again when we already know Iran has gone past the nuclear agreement. Europe's ignoring it. And uh, the JCPOA is something the president said going in and out. I'm not for that. It's a bad deal. Uh, the rest of the Middle East uh, seems to have agreed with that, and certainly Israel does. So I'm worried that Joe Biden's going to go back in there and says, hey, let's get this going again. Are you? Well, I would say that look at the facts on the ground. Right now, Iran has 12 times the amount of uranium enriched as it was allowed under the JCPOA. We just heard that yesterday from the IAEA. That is a problem. We heard two weeks prior to that a report from IAEA that there were um, underground centrifuges being, um, being uh, that had been discovered. There, it is a very unstable time in the Middle East and with Iran, and the, Iran might try to test us right now. They might try to provoke us. How is the Pentagon re- going to react? How is the president going to react? This is a time for united voices, for clear messaging to allies and enemies alike, and it is not a time for adventurism or for, for sending mixed signals. In terms of what the Biden administration does, I think you're probably right that there may be an attempt to re-engage Iran in some way. That is a different approach. We'll have to see what happens. You know, this is not 2016. It's not 2012. We're in a different situation where Iran has now uh, moved forward uh, with its uranium enrichment. And how the U.S. and its allies deal with that is going to be one of the big questions for the next administration uh, on January 20th. And I, and I will say this, uh, you know, if we don't do anything and the Biden administration's a year or two and they don't do anything, Saudi Arabia is going to fire, fire up their nuclear program and you're going to have a totally, uh, you're going to have a Middle East full of nuclear weapons. And I think well, Iran must know that. Seeing, you're already seeing signals. Uh, I mean, the question is, again, the president has laid an incredible groundwork with the Abraham Accords. That is something that unites. They've brought people together in the Middle East in a way that no president has uh, been able to do in, in recent memory. They can capitalize on that. And frankly, uh, the Biden administration will want to capitalize on that by keeping stability. But if you suddenly abandon that and start pulling troops out of Iraq and make Saudi Arabia feel vulnerable and nervous, then yes, they're going to start pursuing nuclear weapons. That is something we do not want. We do not want every Middle Eastern country to have nuclear weapons. That's been part of policy for three, four administrations at least. So this is a time for clear messaging, stability, and not uh, radical firings that then lead to vacuums and handovers. I mean, we know what the 9-11 Commission said in terms of the delayed uh, briefings and the delayed handover uh, and the lack of national security team in place to to really deal with an al-Qaeda threat back in, in the 2000 and 2001 timeframe. This is a risky time in the world, and it is a time where we need to be speaking with one united voice as the United States of America. I hear you, Jennifer. Very uh, Nobody can outline it like you, uh, reporter and uh, an analyst at the same time. Uh, Jennifer, thanks so much. Thank you, Brian. You got it. one 866 So we have a lot out there, and the president did decapitate the Pentagon and put people in there. I know General Tate is a good guy. Uh, I've met him before, done events with him before, um, but he will do exactly what the president wants. And I don't think Secretary of Defense Esper would. And that's okay. But I think you need some pushback for people to tell you reality in the region is this. They have experience of uh, decades in the region 
as opposed to doing business in the region. I think there's a huge difference. So if the president wants to keep that Middle East foreign policy credentials, and that's the top of his resume, it is a fantastic outcome to what happened with Bahrain, Sudan, the UAE, and more are coming online, which he could still line up. Uh, just pulling out truths would be crazy. one 408 I'll be back in just a moment with your calls. Giving you everything you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. There's nothing wrong uh, with Vice President Biden getting the briefings to be able to prepare himself and so that he can be ready. The president's already getting those. There's nothing wrong with the former vice president getting those. Uh, Kamala Harris is on the Intelligence Committee. She has all the clearances that she needs to be able to do that. Uh, There is no loss uh, from him getting the briefings and to be able to do that. And if that's not occurring by Friday, I will step in as well and to be able to push and to say this needs to occur so that regardless of the outcome of the election, whichever way that it goes, uh, people can be ready for that actual task. Yeah, there really is no downside. Senator uh, Langford doing something responsible as usual, talking on one of our great affiliates, KRMG. Rob, listening on KQAM, talking about great affiliates over in Kansas. Hey, Rob. Good morning, Brian. Great to be on your show. Thank Wanted you. to say real quick, I enjoyed your Texas history book. I attended Sam Houston State University. Wow. I love Texas history, and you did a great job with that book. Hey, did you ever make your way to the Sam Houston Library? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's great, yeah. right? Been to, been to a lot of the places in Texas where those battles took place. Um, Goliad, very and, sad story and Rob, there. Just, but, you if know. anyone's listening right now and do, doesn't really know the story, you could go to Fox Nation. I have this series, What Made America Great. I did a whole thing on Sam Houston and the battle of San Jacinto and everything like that. So, But, Rob, what's on your mind today? Thank you for saying that. Yeah, yeah. I, I just uh, want to tell you, I'm a big Trump supporter. Both my wife and I are. And we handed, we bought Trump signs and handed them out in our town and so many people are telling me that they backed the president, and they some are despondent and some are very angry. They feel like they've been cheated, but they are going to stay with this president until he concedes. And they're, and Joe Biden has not won anything. He's not won an election. I hear you. And the first certification started on November 20th. So he's going to, you know, the president fights. He's going to fight. He's going to go through the tape. He's going to fight through the final whistle. Every uh, every slogan you can imagine. He's really ticked off. He feels as though, according to somebody close to him, he feels as though this whole thing was winnable, and his guys let him down in some of these battleground states. And meanwhile, he just wants to make sure that the vote is just. In the meantime, Justin, listening on the app in Aurora, Colorado. Hey, Justin. Hey, Brian. How are you doing? Good. What's on your mind today? You know, I got so many things on my mind, but uh, first of all, I just wanted to say, as far as the country goes, I'm happy with how we did down ballot. Obviously, Colorado, we lost Cory Gardner, um, so that's depressing. Um, In Colorado, Trump's got a lot of support, um, but the main reason why I was calling is I work in the, uh, do a lot of work in the recovery community with drug addiction and alcoholism, and it is absolutely devastating how how much of an increase um, I've seen in in people getting addicted to drugs or uh, you know dr- binge drinking um, and I sense another lockdown coming and 
it's just it's really scary, and I don't think that uh, that that type of stuff gets enough coverage. Justin, you may bring up a great point. Everyone says, "Well, what do you want to do? You're going to put yourself at risk if you go outside." Well, that's fine. Well, Justin, you're telling me the story about drug addiction, alcohol abuse, people losing their jobs, the marriage is coming to pieces, kids no longer going to school, the socialization that takes place, the colleges you don't get into, the ailments that you don't take care of because you don't want to go to the hospital because you hear it's uh, you hear it's something that you you could get the virus there. So because people have an inordinate uh, take of what's going on out there because the amount of people that tested. Listen, hospitalizations are up, but a lot of that has to do with the fact that you get the therapeutics administered in hospitals. You can't take it at home right now. And we have we do have great testing. And it works for us 99%, but the other percent is everyone's getting tested. And so we get more positives. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show coming to you from New York City, heard around the country, heard around the world. This is your one-stop shopping to what's going on uh, in this nation, the place everybody looks to in a time of uh, turbulence. And I think we're all dislocated from each other between the pandemic, between the politics, between the presidential election, between now the, uh, the roar for it all or the battle for it all in Georgia. People are really separated. So we're going to talk to Chris, uh, Chris Wallace shortly. And then we're going to talk to Mark Thiessen at the bottom of the hour, former chief speechwriter for George W. Bush, now Washington Post columnist. Uh, so we'll talk to him about putting this all in perspective. And we've got to see the president's got about five different lawsuits out there today. And we're also looking at a second surge with the coronavirus. Besides that, not much going on. And that battle for recounts on January 5th in Georgia, which will decide the balance of power in the Senate. The Republicans just have to win one of the two races. Democrats have to run the table. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. If you look at new diagnoses of cancer plummeting, the only explanation is that we're going to see this data play out in the coming year or two and realize that lockdowns are not a good national strategy. Now, uh, that is uh, Dr. Mark Hardy uh, talking about COVID-19. He's a Fox News contributor, and he's upset that we seem to be locking down as a country again. When are these power-mad politicians going to realize that these policies don't work? If they did, Germany would be fine, and uh, Italy would be over it. Not the case. Number two. President-elect Joe Biden's win still has not been ascertained, but he is plugging along with his agenda tonight, tapping his longtime aide, Ron Klain, to be his chief of staff. Wow. Uh, Jackie Heinrich reporting that Joe Biden's uncivil war begins to surface as he names the chief of staff. And we Google his baggage and he's got a lot of it. I mean, background as the liberal lobbying begins for positions of power with Biden. The Black Lives Matter leadership and loony left begin to make their demands. Number one. It remains the view of the of the Trump campaign that this election is not over. As we speak to you today, Joe Biden has been certified the winner in exactly zero state. So, no, this election is not over. Communications director with the Trump campaign, Tim Murtaugh. The battle plan is mapped out. The Trump team details their multi-state legal fight for a count and recount that everyone trusts. What are the chances? What about these legal fights? 
Let's bring in this guy. Now it is time to clear the airwaves for the esteemed, receptive voice of Fox News Sunday. Mr. Sunday, the receptive voice, the king. So let's bring in Carl Rove. Hey, Carl. Now, Brian me the most receptive voice on... I mean, come on, what is a receptive voice? Okay, Chris Wallace, who always gives me a hard time with that. <laughs> I, I'm, I, don't, I never have liked that. I think it's a dumb tagline. It means I'm open to all opinions. Receptive voice. The voice is a proper noun because Brian is the voice and he is receptive to ideas. That guy, the voice of God, whoever reads that, I have liked him, but he's become increasingly annoying to me. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to grab yeah. a moniker that nobody else has. No. No. Well, it's like, who's the Norwegian Dancing with the Stars winner? I mean, they don't even have it. No. The receptive oligarch of Fox News Sunday. Why do you want to hurt me? Chris Wallace. <laughs> that was a whole play. That was, I was going to say, we got, what, about 30 seconds left before you say, uh, Chris, we're out of time here now. Uh, who are your guests? As I'd like to say, that was longer than my first marriage. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, in fact, we have your first wife on the phone. Can we, uh, Allison, put her up? That would, no, no, let's not do that. That wouldn't be good? Okay. No. So, um, hey, Chris, first off, were you surprised that Carl Rove is giving me pushback on receptive voice, too? Well, no, I'm not because it is dumb. You could be the receptive mind. You could be the receptive ear. You could be the receptive uh, radio giant. But you can't be a receptive voice. A voice talks. So how can a voice receive? I think it can. I really can't. Well, no, you don't. That's some dope. And he probably got paid a million dollars to come up with this line for you, the receptive voice. And now you're stuck with it. And it's, it, it's made you the laughing stock in the industry. I don't understand it. Wait, well, you're admitting I'm in your industry? You never admitted I was in your industry. No, of course you're in my industry. You're, you know, we... <laughs> In the far reaches, but yes, you're in the, in the <laughs> So, so Chris, a, a couple of things. Five lawsuits yep. out there, uh, five different suits in five different states, and there's different approaches to all of them. But I look at what uh, Carl Rove said today, and he says, listen— you have, a, you have a few weeks before the certifications start coming in. On 1120, Pennsylvania will certify. On 1123, Michigan will certify. Then Arizona the next and on the 23rd. Uh, and then Wisconsin on the 1st of December. Do you think that's when the lawsuits have to either pay off or get out? Well, not necessarily. Now, look, I want everybody to listen to me carefully because I don't want them to just shake their heads and say that Biden-loving, liberal, whatever – just listen. Here's what I'm saying. If there is a legitimate suit that would indicate serious fraud and, uh, uh, and of a dimension that would actually overturn the result, not 200 votes in a state that Biden won by 10,000, but 10,000 votes in a state he won by 10,000, I'm absolutely happy to hear about it. I will investigate it. I will look at it, and I will treat it seriously. I promise. Having said that, we haven't seen it so far. I think everybody would agree. And each one of these suits so far on on the merits of vote fraud has been thrown out by Republican-appointed judges, Democratic-appointed judges, all of that. Here is the one concern. I'd be curious what your reaction is to this. There is a scenario. All of the electors have to be named and, and actually have to vote by December 14th. So we're a little bit, what, just about a month away now. And if there are lawsuits tying it up, it is legal for the state legislatures to step in and they name the electors. And in states that have, for instance, let's say Biden 
supposedly won, and that a Republican legislature uh, it controls could it like Pennsylvania, for instance, could they conceivably, even if Biden is ahead by 20 or 40 or 50,000 votes, could they conceivably name Trump electors? Now, I ask you, how would you feel if Biden wins a state in the popular vote and a Republican legislature, just as a thought experiment, but it's possible, steps in and names Trump uh, electors overriding the will of the American people, uh, as be, of the people that, of that state. Yeah, that would be as wrong as Hillary Clinton uh, urging them to defect last time, and a couple of them did. Hopefully it won't come to that, and we'll get the answer to that. Now, I'm not going to uh, go into each one and what they're looking into, but they have five different ones pretty much outlined, and we'll see if there's something systemic in Georgia's recount or Wisconsin's recount. Here's what Jonathan Turley said. Cut three. I think it's clear at this point that voting fraud occurred. I mean, there are obviously uh, there's obviously a record here of dead people voting. Uh, there's obviously problems of, of keeping observers in positions where they really couldn't observe very effectively. But we still don't know. But we wouldn't know unless we had greater access to the system itself. That is held by election officials, and that requires a court to order that information to be turned over. So he says there's something there, but might not be enough there. We'll see what happens with uh, Georgia's recount. And now we're going to get no breather on this anyway, because January 5th, at stake, the balance of power in the Senate with a state that used to be reliably red that is now purple. So there's going to be a lot of drama uh, going on as we have two senatorial runoffs in Atlanta, excuse me, in Georgia. Yeah, absolutely. And there have been new polls. You've got the Ossoff-Purdue uh, race, uh, and you've got the Warnock-Kelly Leffler race. And there are new polls that show that they're both very competitive. I mean, look, you, it's, it's Georgia, and yes, it, Biden may have won, and the, both of these were forced to runoffs, but it's more likely than not. I mean, if you had to bet right now, you would bet on the Republicans to win, but they're both competitive enough. And if this were, it, it, it seems almost certain this is going to be for control of the Senate, because if the Democrats win both, it'll be 50-50, and Kamala Harris, as the, we think, vice president-elect, would break ties. Can you imagine how much money is going to be spent in those two states when they're not just two random Senate races, but a, a, a battle for who yeah. controls the Senate, Republicans? There are estimates that each race will be a hundred, two hundred million dollars, and that's just between now and January fifth. So that's less than than two months. I mean, I am so glad I don't live in Georgia. Can you imagine the number of TV ads on uh, you know bashing one or the other? It's going to be a mess. But I will tell you this: uh, the the call by Thomas Friedman and others to move to Georgia to vote for uh, for a Democrat is unbelievable to me. I find stunning. Uh, Did he really say that? Yeah, yeah. He said it yesterday. <laughs> I hadn't heard that. Yeah, it's changed residence. <laughs> So I've changed my residence. Yeah, I'm going to do that. So a couple of things. I'm stunned that James Clyburn and company and others, and one I'm going to read you now, are already saying how dumb it was to say defund the police, how uh, not smart it was to allow themselves to be labeled socialist. Here's what Akeem Jeffrey said, not known as a moderate. He's from New York, probably the next speaker when Nancy Pelosi steps aside. Quote, do we want to win or do we want to govern? Or do we want to be Internet celebrities? I think it's a useful conversation for us to have because the socialism message 
was not helpful. AOC answers, it pretty much astounds me that some Dems don't believe it's possible to govern and be politically popular and command formidable bully pulpits at, at the same time. But it actually explains a lot about how we use um, – and I can't read my writing the rest of the way. <laughs> I can't read but my I'm writing. Sure it was very – explains sure a lot about, about the House and what we have to uh, uh, change uh, uh, from here on in. So what do you think about I blame I can I just say something I blame Allison for that because you know when I get a a thing like that it's actually been printed out I don't have to sit and read my handwriting and it's a ter- terrible failure I I mean these, I don't know how you're able to work you've said this before I don't know how you're able to do your show with these people I said that to you when I had a few too many at the Christmas party not to be not to be put out on a national radio show Oh uh. Oh So did what I do you say think Say it out loud or yeah. did I just think it what do you you said it out loud? What do you think about Clyburn pushing back against Bernie Sanders? Hakeem Jeffries pushing back I against AOC. Great. I think it's great. Look, uh, there is a battle inside the Democratic Party, and you know, in a sense, I don't think he would agree with this, but I think Joe Biden may have been done a favor if Republicans hold the Senate because some of the ideas, if 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 Democrats control the Senate, then a lot of the ideas that I suspect Biden really doesn't want to do, like blow up the filibuster in the Senate. This is a guy who was in the Senate, what, 36 years or something. He doesn't want to end the filibuster, would end the Senate as we know it. He doesn't want to pack the court. Again, I'm assuming, but I don't think he really does want to do that. But he would be, if there were a Democratic Senate, then there's enormous pressure on him. Now, if the Republicans hold on, he can say, hey, you know, Mitch McConnell's a majority leader. Get real. So there is a real battle inside the Democratic Party. There are a lot of people on the left. You know, obviously, Clyburn and Hakeem Jeffries don't think they've been very quiet, but, uh, you know, who have been relatively quiet because they wanted Joe Biden to get elected. And, it, you know, they're going to be pushing for things that I suspect, like defund the police or, uh, you know, Medicare for all or the Green New Deal that one, I think, are far outside Biden's comfort zone. Look, he campaigned against them in the primaries, and two, would do nothing but alienate some people who, you know, maybe somewhat half-heartedly voted for Biden in the election. All right, Chris, who do you have on your show this weekend? Well, we hope we're going to have a member of the Biden transition team. And then on this first issue we were talking about, the significance, the, the strength of the lawsuits, and also this question about states, state legislatures naming electors, going against uh, the popular vote, we're going to be talking. I know you think you're one of the most distinguished lawyers in America, but these two people beat you. Lawrence Tribe, Harvard Law professor, but, and a Trump Star, hater. former Trump federal hater. judge. He's just a Trump hater. That guy cannot think clearly when it comes to Trump. Well, how about don't you talk about Ken Starr that way. That's outrageous. <laughs> I'm talking about Lawrence Tribe, but let them uh, battle it out. Well, let them battle it out. That's my point. All right. It, it's going to be interesting. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see if the I think pre- it'll go as well. Can I say something? I think it'll go as well as the first debate did. <laughs> yeah. And, and let's just hope you get in there and you separate them, right? <laughs> yeah. I'll try again. All, All right. right. Anyway. All right. At uh, least I can laugh at myself. you got to give me that. I know. I, I, I give you a lot of credit because I hate laughing at you alone. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you join the crowd. So, Chris Wallace, thanks so much. Do we have a close to Chris or we just say goodbye? We just say goodbye. Chris Wallace, we're going well, to watch you on fire. I, I want to close next week. I mean it. I want to close or I'm not coming on. Tell Allison. Eric, are you going to agree to that? Frank is going to agree to that? That's the voice of Frank God. Bruno, Frank Bruno, the voice of God. Yes. All right. In fact, you should have him introduce you at dinner. 
to Lorraine. Lorraine Dinner's Ray. Joining us now for dinner, Chris well, You know, Wallace. it's like in, in Downton Abbey, or, you know, we're up at one of the Masterpiece Theater when the person walks in and they say, the Lord, I, I, that's what I want. I want that when I walk in the room. I want to be announced. What would it say? Here's Chris. Ah. All right, Chris, we're going to work on that. I'll work work on that. Maybe you can, that that can be the subject of my clothes next week. Chris Wallace, thank you very much. Thank you, Jack. Thank you, Brian. Bye. Celebrating 10 years. Wait, has it really been that long? As usual, you've made it all about yourself. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. As the numbers started returning, the president started making some gains. But the reality is right now, there's, you know, less than 50,000 votes to count. And the president would have to get about 65% of them to win Arizona. So it does appear that Joe Biden will win Arizona. Uh, And we'll see uh, about Arizona. But Arizona, I know one thing. It's still not decided. I don't even think CNN has picked it out yet. We have. But it's down to 11,000. I mean, when I started this show this week, it was it was about 25,000 or excuse me, 20,000. So every time they do counseling, the president's picking up more and more votes. He's so frustrated that we called it early. I understand that. Uh, Meanwhile, Newt Gingrich weighed in on where we're at right now. Cut six. First of all, if it genuinely doesn't go his way, uh, he'll become a former president on the 20th of January. And then he'll have several big options because my hunch is uh, he will be the most popular person in the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And there is one example. Grover Cleveland was elected in 1884, defeated in 1888, and then re-elected in 1892. Now, whether or not Trump has the appetite for that, who knows? But he clearly has a big enough base that he would be very formidable. And I think the Democrats are right on the verge of a pretty big civil war between their, their right and left wings. And so the world may look a lot different a year from now uh, in terms of how people feel about the two parties. And imagine Joe Biden have to work two days in a row. And I'm not kidding. Lewis listening in Florida. Hey, Lewis. Brian, thank you for the opportunity. Two quick points. I thought that President Trump missed an opportunity six months ago. He should have made a national appeal, a national speech to Hispanic America, make it a clarion call. He should have emphasized that conservatism and Hispanics have three things in common, love of family, God, and country. Had he emphasized that, he could have gotten a greater portion of the Hispanic vote in Arizona and in Texas and in other Nevada, New Mexico. And it was a lost opportunity. But I will say this. If the Republican Party does not do this, it will lose all future national elections. At this point, we can't get past one-third of the Hispanic vote voting Republican, mainly evangelicals. Yeah, I mean, they did extremely well in Texas, did extremely well with the Hispanic vote in Florida, has the majority of the Cuban vote. Has to do better across the country, but they're en route to doing that. A multi ethnic party. They're doing it. Blue collar as well. 
It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. John Podesta, who was chief of staff to Bill Clinton when George W. Bush was coming into office, was the person that I had to work with. He was the chief of staff. I was the incoming chief of staff, George W. Bush. And we had a similar situation. Tight election, 2000, 537 votes George Bush won by when the Supreme Court said you're the winner, which meant we didn't get to start our transition until after the Supreme Court made its decision. So we had very few days. That was found by the 9-11 Commission. And remember, the attacks on 9-11 happened September of 2001. And George W. Bush took office in January of that year. And the 9-11 Commission said if there had been a longer transition and there had been cooperation, there might have been a better response or maybe even not even any attack. That was a long description of Andy Card saying, uh, turn over the presidential daily brief to Joe Biden while you fight it out. What does Mark Thiessen think, former chief uh, speechwriter for George W. Bush, contributed to Washington Post as a columnist, and he is now a Fox News contributor as well. Mark, what do you think about that? Do you think the presidential daily brief should be signed, should be handed over to Joe Biden? A hundred percent. Yes. Andy Card is 100 percent correct. And look, there is no reason why Joe Biden can't open his transition office and continue functioning while the election is in dispute. Uh, my wife worked on the Bush transition back then, and they had an office in, in McLean uh, until mid-December, and they didn't have an official transition until after it was settled. And so Joe Biden can go ahead and, and, and set up his transition office. But I think that you can simultaneously challenge the election results, litigate whatever you need to litigate, but also uh, accept the reality that there's never been an election with these many votes flipped uh, in history and the likelihood of success, even if there was fraud, uh, is is limited. And that the president, you know, what Trump, what Trump doesn't want is for a 9-11 commission to blame him uh, if there's another attack in early in the, in, the, uh, in the Biden administration, which is what they will do. They will blame him uh, for having impeded the transition. So, it's in his interest. It's in the country's interest to both uh, proceed with a tra- with a with a transition plan, but also exercise his rights to uh, to challenge the election and to go to court and to litigate. I want you to hear what Jim Jordan said about the litigation. There's five separate lawsuits, at least in five separate states. Cut five. The same people who are te- who told us you could trust the Steele dossier are now telling us you can trust the results of this election. The same people who told us you could trust the uh, whistleblower in the impeachment hearings. Remember, the anonymous whistleblower with no firsthand knowledge, bias against the president, who worked for Joe Biden. You can trust him. They, they said that. Now they're saying you can trust the results of this election. And I think people in Pennsylvania and people across the country, the 72 million that Mr. Turley just mentioned, they know something doesn't feel right here. Our president got nine million more votes this time than he did four years ago, and yet he comes up short, even though we gained seats in the in the House of Representatives. Something doesn't feel right, and that's why we got to do what Joe Biden said. Let's go all the way until this is independently verified. And that's what he said originally before the election. Mark, where do you stand? Where I stand is that he's got the right to litigate it, and he's going to go to court, and he should. As I stand where George W. Bush did when he said that he had every right to challenge the election results, demand recounts, and if he can flip the flip the three states, then he's president. But if he can't, uh, then Joe Biden is going to be president, and he needs to preside over a uh, over a transition. And, and Trump needs to keep in mind this is this is not you know this is not the end game. 
uh, he is very likely, if he wants it, to get the. I mean, if if he wants the Republican nomination in 2024, it's his. He can run and uh, and win the election in four years from now. He can't if he leaves uh, the White House uh, in a, in a way that alienates a lot of Americans and makes them think that he's a sore loser. He will hurt his chances of ever reclaiming the presidency. Right. So he yeah. doesn't he doesn't have to concede the election necessarily, but he has to say that for the sake of the country, he's stepping aside if he can't get the legal case, and he can he can maintain that the election was stolen and he's going to reclaim it in four years. Um, but but he but I, I I worry that he is going to uh, that he's going to permanently damage himself in the way he handles this transition. Right. If he handles the transition, I don't I think there's very little chance he goes to the inauguration. He ought to. He has to. It's it's it would be the first president in 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 modern history to have not done that. He has to invite Joe Biden to the White House. He has to uh, he has to give him the PDB. He has to uh, you know cooperate and he has to he has to attend the inauguration and then you know he can declare his candidacy right on on January 20th. He can declare that he's running in 2024 um, and it, and he's going to reclaim his presidency and it's going to be an interesting four years if he does because you know Bush uh, you know every every president who before before him who uh, left office. Was basically finished, right? They they Bush Bush retired from public life. George H. W. Bush, even though he had only been for one term, retired from public life. Barack Obama, and so they none of them criticized their predecessors, their successors very much because they owed them, as Bush said, we owe them the silence. But but you know, I think uh, Trump is going to do what uh, Grover Cleveland did in 1888, which is after he lost to Benjamin Harrison, uh, he became the 20, uh, 25th and 27th president of the United States. And I think Donald Trump uh, is very likely to try and run to become the 27th president. Yeah, it's, yeah like you say, it's got to be relevant at 28. And I'll say this, uh, I'm sure you you mean you don't you know Barack Obama never kept quiet. Uh, he basically was constantly a critic of the president, unlike George W. Bush. Uh, yes and no. I mean, I, I don't agree with that entirely. I think that he there were moments where he spoke up. Uh, he certainly during the campaign uh, was active in a way that President Bush was. And so he wasn't quite up to the model of Bush, but he wasn't every day uh, attacking the president. Pretty regularly. Uh, 2018, he basically led the charge. OK, yeah. I mean, in midterm elections, yes, he's a, he was an active voice right. for his party uh, during an election campaign. I'm telling uh, you right now, I don't know. Standard, but, right. I don't know who's going to convince President Obama. I mean, the, the, the reality is Donald Trump has every reason to continue criticizing Joe Biden winter throughout the next four years because he's going to be an active. He's not a spent political force. He will be an active candidate for 2024. And so that's what candidates do. They criticize the people are going to be running again. Right. Uh, and we know, too, that Barack Obama never stopped criticizing George W. Bush, even though he was out of office and he was a spent political force. So there was a classlessness yep. to that that Bob, Bob Gates sure. wrote about in I'm his not, book. I'm not here to defend Barack Obama. Yeah. So uh, and he has a <laughs> yeah, I guess Barack Obama has a book coming out and I'm sure it'll be very complimentary towards Donald Trump. Um, so, Mark, the other thing is I don't know who's going to convince President Trump to go because I don't think he's going. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm, I'll do my best in my columns and and all the rest of it to, to give him advice. But uh, look, he, he the, the most important thing he needs to do is he needs to leave on a high note, not looking like a sullen loser, right? He needs to go out and he needs to campaign in Georgia and hold rallies the way he did in the last days of the campaign. And he can be responsible for saving the Republican majority in the Senate. And if he does, then he will go out with a huge victory a vindication from the from the election campaign and a and launched the first salvo was 2024 campaign. Um, so, you know, he needs to he needs to start looking forward and not looking back. Let's talk um, about should, let's talk about Georgia and let's talk about this race. So we're going to be talking about a lot, a lot. But right now you have to think that uh, 
Kelly Loeffler and Purdue, David Purdue, have the advantage going in uh, because you combine the Doug Collins uh, votes where she's a, somewhat of a rookie as a politician, but she's not going against the strongest candidate either. No, that's true. And the reality is, look, there have been eight uh, runoff races in Georgia since the 1960s. Republicans have won seven of them. Uh, the only time, the, the last time Democrats won one was over 20 years ago for uh, for the uh, for a, a low-level position. Um, the last Senate runoff was Saxby Chambliss in 2008, and I think he had like 49.8 percent of the vote on election day, and he won with 57 percent. So the the tradition is that the uh, or the history is that Republicans gain their gain votes uh, in the uh, in the runoff because uh, the number of people voting uh, goes down, particularly number of African Americans voting goes down and Republican voters turn out for for runoffs. However, in 2008, Barack Obama had won the presidency and Democrats already had control of the Senate. So there wasn't as much at stake uh, in that, though there was a 60-vote majority at stake. This time, you have two races that are going to decide to determine the the control of the Senate. And so I think the motivation on the part of Democrats is going to be much higher. And Trump needs to turn out his voters uh, because he's not going to be in the ballot, and so that uh, that that could hurt Republicans. And by the way, Raphael uh, Raphael Warnock, who had the most votes in the jungle primary, uh, this is a guy that's got to explain explaining to do. You know, why did his church? He said he was a junior member of uh, welcoming Fidel Castro. Why he is such a proponent of Jemiah Wright, who goddamned America. That's kind of fascinating. And I also think he's got another uh, allegation he's got to handle, which was brought out yesterday by Kelly Loeffler. Uh, she says uh, they said that there's an allegation in 2000 of him, along with somebody else, hindering an investigation into child abuse at a church run camp in 2002. All this stuff was not getting scrutiny because they were worried about each other, Collins and Loeffler. Yep. But now that's really going to open up. It is. It is going to open up, and it's going to be a uh, brutal and very expensive, uh, very expensive election. Uh, the, you know, and you forgot even uh, people. All that is is out there that uh, that Warnock's going to have to answer. Um, and you also have Tom Friedman and others saying that people should move down to uh, move down to uh, Georgia to vote. It's it's, uh, it's kind of ironic that they're criticizing President Trump for pursuing uh, allegations of voter fraud while opening. Openly advocating voter fraud, having out-of-state voters come in and vote in Georgia. Uh, so, you know, a little bit of hypocrisy going on there. Absolutely. Do you think the president helps or hurts in Georgia? Oh, he helps. I mean, look, the the, the his he base, lost it though. I know, but he but his base is uh, is uh, is going to be the key. If if his voters don't turn out, uh, then uh, then it's uh, then they're going to lose. Um, so he needs the Trump base to be can't be. This is why it's so important how he handles it. His base cannot be dispirited. He has to he has to point them towards 2024. He has to point them towards we're going to we're going to this is not over. We're going to take this back. And the first salvo is winning is 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 control keeping control of the Senate because if we don't win control of the Senate, then they are going to do damage that I can't undo four years from now. So we have to stop them from 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 imposing socialist policies that we can never undo. Well, that's, uh, look how hard it was to turn around Obamacare. Uh, it's that, not going to be just Obamacare. It's going to be Medicare for all. It's going to be climate climate change and the Green New Deal and all the rest of it. So he's got to tell his voters this is about 2024. This is the first salvo in the reelection campaign. And I do believe the Senator Manchin, when he came out and said, as long as I'm in the Senate, I will not approve uh, getting rid of the filibuster. I will not pack the court. Do you think that is damage control after what Senator Schumer said, we're going to change America? Or do you think he th- uh, sincerely believes that? I think it might be both, um, but here's the reality. So uh, let's say the Democrats take back the Senate by one vote, 
and is Joe and they, and all of a sudden the Republican minority uh, starts to filibuster Green New Deal, Medicare for all, some some bill, uh, uh, Biden's tax uh, tax increases. Do you honestly think that Joe Manchin, Democrat, standing against his president and his party to allow them to do, to to uh, stop the Biden agenda? Not going to happen. He's going to have to fold. The pressure is going to be enormous. Um, and then once that happens, uh, it's game over. Uh, for, for when it when it comes to the the whole floodgates, or the legislative floodgates open up. Imagine the the legislative juggernaut that we've said the, the the judicial juggernaut that we've seen with Donald Trump confirming something like 300 judges, except applied to legislation where there's no there's no holds bar, there's no reason for compromise, there's no reason to negotiate. And lastly, Mark, I got to know you're passionate about this. The president, according to exit polls, got 94 percent of the Republican vote. It's even more than last time. What does that say about the Lincoln Project and all the anti-Trumpers? Oh, there. I mean, well, well, I put two different things: the Lincoln Project and the anti and and, uh, and other anti-Trumpers. Lincoln Project not only opposed the president, and look, they've got their right to do it. I understand they come to a different calculation than I do about Donald Trump. My my calculation of Donald Trump is I don't like a lot of what he says, but I like what he does, and that's more important to me. They come to a different conclusion. What the Lincoln Project did is they tried to unseat Republican senators and hand the Senate over to to Democrats. That is unconscionable. That is you you cannot say that you are a conservative and want to give un bridled one state, one party power to the Democrats and allow Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren to vote socialism on America. If you, I, I respect people who disagreed about Donald Trump and, and opposed him and didn't vote for him. I don't respect anybody who wanted to have a Democratic, give, give Joe Biden a Democratic Senate. Right. Uh, they were very And they were repudiated. They're 0 for 7 and hopefully will be 0 for 9. Right. And they raised a ton of money. Uh, we'll see yep. if, um, if some people get into a Biden cabinet because of some of the stances they took. All right. We'll see. Mark Teeson, always great to talk to you. Great to talk to you. All right. So Mark's telling the president, hey, the way you get out could really set you up for the next time. I'm not sure the president is thinking clearly now. I think he is so uh, upset about uh, what seems to be the end of um, of his presidency. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I'll be back with more to know and with your calls in just a moment. Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. From his mouth to to your your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. We're back, everyone. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Let's go to Nat in Florida. Hey, Nat. Hey, how you doing? Good. What's you know, on your mind? I'm hoping, I, I voted uh, twice for Trump, but I didn't vote for him in the Florida primary back way back when. The point is, he has a way of alienating people like no one I've ever seen. I like what he does, but he's basically a vulgar, narcissistic individual that brings out the base. I mean, we're all talking about the 71 million people who voted for him. How about the 74, even with the fraud, the 73, 74 million people who are motivated to come out and vote against him? Yeah. That's what he does. He's like, like a, he reminds me a friend of mine when we were single in Manhattan and stuff like that. You know, we'd walk up to a group of girls. He'd come over. They'd all leave, and we would put on the least wanted list. I mean, he. I hope 
he he prevails in the courts. But if he doesn't, I pray that he says, I'm going to retire gracefully and get out, because I've never seen anyone like it who motivates. I rarely voted for somebody. I usually vote against somebody. Last person I voted for with enthusiasm was Ronald Reagan. It's always I'm voting against Obama or voting against Trump. That's what he does. People want to come out. I hear you, Nat. And let me just give you some stats. 51% of the people who said they voted for Joe Biden said it was because they were voting against Trump, not for Biden. I think it's actually higher. Thank you. Let's find out there's more to know. More to know. So we hear about this coronavirus vaccine, right? Ticketmaster is exploring verifying fans with the vaccine to start having concerts again. The ticketing giant, Ticketron, uh, Ticketmaster, I should say, uh, plans to have customers use their cell phones to verify the inoculation of whether they tested negative for the virus 24 to 72 hours before. The plan, which was still being ironed out, will utilize three separate components, including uh, some digital ticketing app, third-party health information, uh, firms like Clear, which we love Clear, and they make it a health pass. Uh, vaccination distributors like LabCorp and CVS would offer some type of verification. They're desperate to get back into live events. Everybody is. I know, but are you comfortable with that, saying you have to have a vaccine in order to go to a concert? I don't know. You want to see Cole Swindell or not see him? You know? the only, the you want to watch po- him on a Zoom call? Well, the thing is, the or part here is if you just test negative, right? But I think if you have to prove you've been vaccinated, I mean, what happened to HIPAA suddenly, right? Uh, I mean, I know you're offering that up yourself, but still, it seems it seems a bit strong. Next, Hollywood's getting back to work. Film permits are up 24%. They're still up 40. They're still off 47%. No one's filming anything. Think about that. The crews, the grips, the cameramen, not just the actors and actresses, the producers, the directors. These guys and these women... They live, yeah, a high life, but they're used to having regular income. No one predicted this. Think about what's going on in Los Angeles. Uh, you know, you go up there, everything's boarded up. There's no one shooting anywhere, let alone let alone other countries. I mean, they're all going to go to Canada. I read that some people go to New Zealand and Australia. Wow, that makes sense. I have seen just like people I follow on Instagram, for what it's worth, a lot of people are um, shooting things up in Canada. They go up there, quarantine for two weeks, and they start to shoot. Next, Peloton and Beyonce are teaming up, I know, finally, uh, for a multi-year deal that will bring a series of themed workouts paying homage to the historically black colleges and universities. Uh, This thing was already the most requested artist on the fitness company, $3.6 million members. uh, And uh, she and Peloton are are gifting two-year digital memberships to students at 10 different HBCUs, which provide access to the fitness classes through the Peloton app. It's a long way to go. It's not just the bike. I mean, once you get subscriptions, you can do other stuff. I, people that I know love, love, love the app. Right. I'm not really. I'm more of the country. I choose that as a theme. You don't uh, choose the Beyonce-themed rides? Not as much as you would think. <laughs> uh, what was the name of their group, though? Who? Beyonce. Destiny's Child. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach, it's Brian Kilmeade. 
Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Carl Rove is just getting out of the shower. He'll be with us shortly, providing that insightful analysis on this relatively unprecedented time in American history as we're between two presidents and the current president fighting it out in multiple states. We'll get into detail. At the bottom of the hour, one of the, um, one of the America's best-known sportscasters, Jim Gray, out with a brand-new book called uh, Talking to Goats. And basically, they're his friends, from whether it's uh, Julius Irving, whether it's Tiger Woods, whether it's Tom Brady or Mike Tyson or Muhammad Ali, now Lani Ali, uh, he brings those experiences to life. It's going to be a special that's going to be on this Sunday at 10 o'clock. It's going to be on Fox Nation. I was able to host it with him. He's going to be with us shortly. And, of course, the Masters starts today. Usually it's in March, but everything's different this year. I don't know if you've heard. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. If you look at new diagnoses of cancer plummeting, the only explanation is that we're going to see this data play out in the coming year or two and realize that lockdowns are not a good national strategy. Uh, I think we pretty much know that, and I think the rest of the world is showing us that. It's actually Marty McCary. Uh, he was on. He's a Fox News contributor and a doctor. We are looking at another lockdown. COVID-19 surging in all 50 states. Hospitalization sur- uh, surging in the Midwest. What are we going to do about it? Looks like some power-hungry governors want to shut us down again. And the politi- politics behind the vaccine will share that story. Number two. President-elect Joe Biden's win still has not been ascertained, but he is plugging along with his agenda tonight, tapping his longtime aide Ron Klain to be his chief of staff. Yep, uh, Biden's uncivil war begins to service as he names the chief of staff. And we'll get into his background, I mean baggage, as the liberal lobbying begins for positions of power. The Black Lives Matter leadership group and the loony left begin to say, we now got you elected, Joe. We have our demands. Number one. It remains the view of the, of the Trump campaign that this election is not over. As we speak to you today, Joe Biden has been certified the winner in exactly zero states. So, no, this election is not over. Well, that's Tim Murtaugh. The battle plan is mapped out. The Trump team details their multi-state legal fight for a vote count everyone trusts. What are their chances? What is the, What about the legal fights? Well, they did get some good news yesterday when the attorney general in Georgia says we will recount by hand all the ballots. Joining us now, Carl Rove. Carl, that is that a good sign? Uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's um, useful. Uh, first of all, there had to be a recount uh, because under Georgia law, if less than half a percent separates the two candidates, and in this case, it's just over a quarter of a percent separates the two candidates, there's an automatic recount. And it's left up to the secretary of state, not the attorney general, but the secretary of state to determine the nature of that recount. And he has decided that people would have greater confidence if all 157 counties conducted a hand count re, uh, recall. Uh, I mean, recount, and that's 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 what will happen in Georgia. In Arizona, there were 11,000 down. That's whittling down every day. Michigan, 145,000. Nevada, 36,000. Pennsylvania, 53. Georgia, 14,000. And you say in your column today, unless some something emerges quickly, the president's chances in court will decline precipitously. Uh, well, I say they'll decline precipitously when they begin to certify the results, which will start on the 20th of of November, um, eight days from now. So the president's team is a little bit behind the power curve here. Uh, They've made accusations of widespread systemic fraud. They've got to get to court with solid evidence and get to court quickly, because once those states start certifying that, you know, either Trump or Biden has won, it is difficult 
it raises the bar of difficulty for the for the losing candidate to overturn those results. You write uh, on eleven on the twentieth Pennsylvania, on the twenty third Michigan, on the thirtieth Arizona, and then Wisconsin on the first. I'm not sure is Wisconsin is are they uh, are they recounting? Uh, you know, I don't think they are. A recount is possible, and, and if the Trump campaign wants a recount, I think they have to apply for it. But, but my point, my general point was, I mean, think about it. We're, we're sitting here. The, the election was a week ago Tuesday, and uh, they've had some filings in court. They had to do with mainly observation of, of the vote count. But if they have systemic, uh, you know, evidence of systemic fraud, they better get it, get it framed up and into court quickly because. Courts are going to be loath to see sort of last-minute, uh, you know, accusations thrown against these uh, these uh, these these counts. You know, you've got to you've got to hold them off from certifying. You know, they're going to have, they're going to require a high level of evidence to uh, to uh, for a midnight a plea to keep the state from certifying. If there's one thing that I think it's pretty consistent, the president from day one when he heard that ballots were going to be mailed out to people without them requesting it, he said that was going to be a problem. He was right, wasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Now, most of these states did not mail out ballots to everybody, but yeah, that is a problem. Nevada did. And uh, I think, you know, look, if you mail them to real people, it's one thing. And if you've got in place like Oregon and Washington, the procedures, the safeguards, the equipment, the personnel to manage that process, that's one thing. But those those two secretaries of state, those two states, along with Colorado and a couple of others, do all mail-in ballots. Well, Oregon and Washington in May, the secretaries of state told their colleagues on a conference call, if you don't already cast 60 percent of your vote by mail, you're not going to be prepared by the fall. It took us five years to get in a place where we could do this. So then you had Nevada and New York and others go ahead with the mailing ballots, either for the primaries or in the case of Nevada for the general election to everybody on the voter file, including the inactives. Who, who are, you know, by, by, by their very nature, if you're an inactive, it means that you have not voted for a number of years and they have sent you a first class postcard saying, you know, uh, are you still around? And the postcard has been returned by the post office as addressee is unknown. And they went ahead in, in the primary mailed ballots to those. And in, in Clark County, Nevada, 200,000 of them came back. But even postal workers said, here are bins and bins and bins of these ballots that are unsecured sitting in our post office getting ready for transit back to the election headquarters. And anybody could, could have come in and taken ballots and walked off with them. That's what uh, I think is really killing uh, President Trump. He feels like in a different time without these uh, the perfect storm for Joe Biden where he doesn't have to campaign. He could not keep up the pace if he had to. And then these ballots flooding the zone. The president won big on Election Day. He won big on mail-in voting. Of course, he could have played it different and said uh, a little bit more positive on the stump about mailing in votes. So Ron Klain has ne- is been named the chief of staff for Joe Biden. Remember when he said this when Joe Biden had his own potential pandemic to deal with. Here's what he said. Cut 21. A bunch of really talented, really great people working on it, and we did every possible thing wrong. And it's, you know, 60 million Americans got H1N1 uh, in that period of time, and it's just purely a fortuity that this isn't one of the great mass casualty events in American history. Had nothing to do with us doing anything right. Just had to do with luck. Uh, And so if anyone thinks that this can't happen again, uh, they don't have to go back to 1918. They just have to go back to 2009, 2010. He told us he wasn't ready. He told us he made mistakes. That's the guy in charge now. Well, first of all, that if, you, if you've if you ever been in a White House briefing about these kind of events, 
That's what everybody who is briefing you tells you is the possibility because we have a huge number of unknowns. We don't know how transmissible the virus is from animal to human. We don't know about how transmissible it is among humans. We don't necessarily know exactly how it will be transmitted. We certainly don't know what the mortality rate is going to be, and we don't know the right therapeutics and the right treatment. And we don't know, or at least we used to not know, how long it was reasonable to expect before we would get a vaccine. In fact, even today, we don't know that. Thank God we've got Operation Warp Speed, and thank God for one other imponderable. For some reason, this virus does not, it does not change as much as viruses normally do. That's why, remember, you have to get your annual flu shot. It's because the flu virus is constantly changing. So he was simply telling the truth. He was, he, but the, the fact of the matter is, is that the criticism of President Trump for his handling of COVID is largely unfair. And, and think about this. In March, guess what Ron Klain was saying? We don't face a health pandemic. We face a fear pandemic, accusing the administration of overhyping the threat of the coronavirus. So, you know, you'll notice after that comment, he sort of disappeared from the public view. Uh, you know, the Biden campaign decided, you know what, between him and Zeke Emanuel saying, don't run out and get a mask, it won't do any good. And Erwin Rylander saying, the idea that this would be a global pandemic is highly unlikely, and the, the idea that there's a threat of death from this is negligible. Those guys also largely disappeared from the public seat. No longer were they out there being characterized as advisors and spokesmen for Vice President Biden on this issue. So let's talk about the division on the, on the left. Michael Moore uh, is pushing Joe Biden not to go up the middle. So he decides to write a letter and then read it out loud. Cut 28. I see various people in the media— and elsewhere, trying to take credit for your victory and using their personal agendas to push you away from the progressive left and toward the cowardly center. They think because Trump got 70 million votes that the the Democrats should now reject, reject Black Lives Matter, reject AOC, and and reject anything that vaguely sounds like socialism. Please do not make the same mistake that an otherwise well-meaning and well-intentioned President Obama made charge in there on January 20th like FDR on steroids and go big. So to handle it like we're coming off a depression on the doorstep of a world war? Uh, Well, uh, Michael Moore, political philosopher, uh, bon vivant, and uh, campaign consultant, uh, my suspicion is that letter is going to get absolutely no attention inside uh, Team Biden. And, uh, you know, there's there's a there's a fight brewing inside the Democratic Party. Uh, Joe Biden will be stronger if he rejects the left. He will be weaker if he tries to appease it. Uh, but it ain't going away. It is a descendant uh, element inside the Democratic Party. And, uh, you know, AOC has the followers and the squad has the the moxie, and uh, they think they are right. I, it was amazing. They, they held a news conference, and the squad said, you know what won the election was, was the addition of the most uh, left-wing, the most progressive, i.e. left-wing member of the U.S. Senate, Kamala Harris. That's what won the election for Joe Biden. I mean, that's what these people think. And, and they also said, you know, uh, stop downplaying the issues that matter to, to our communities, defunding the police. You know, uh, ending the military military state. I mean, I love it. They got this new member of Congress. I, I mistakenly said last night on Hannity that she was from Maryland, but she's from Missouri, Cori Bush, 
who said we ought to defund the military and turn all that money into social services. It's a little scary. It's beyond scary. And uh, Black Lives Matter co-founder came out and said they want a meeting immediately with the president. Patrice Kohler says he requested a meeting because she got him elected. She says, despite making history by choosing the first female black VP to be elected to the office, it is yet to be seen if Biden can make good on his campaign promise to create a police oversight board to combat police brutality, particularly against black and minority people. Uh, and with and he wants she wants to do it within a hundred days. She wants a meeting right away. He also promised to create an economic plan that provides housing, education, and financial support to Black and Latino communities. That's what BLM wants right away. Yeah, well, uh, and the demands will keep growing and growing and growing, and that's why it's important to keep a Republican Senate as the uh, sort of last line of defense against these nutty schemes. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. I saw Nancy Pelosi in a news conference talking about the difference between the moderates and the progressives. When did you last think that Nancy Pelosi was a moderate? Ever. But that's the new that's the new Democratic Party. The new Democratic Party has a hard left that is socialist in nature, loves the word socialism. Think about it. They've got a guy in uh, running for the United States Senate in Georgia in that special election, Reverend Warnock, who welcomed Fidel Castro to his church. Who, who invited Jeremiah Wright to his church and then defended him when he was under attack for his anti-Semitic comments. Uh, this is the new Democratic Party, and it ain't, it ain't our mothers and fathers' Democratic Party anymore. It ain't you know, sort of blue-collar FDR. It is out there on the left. This is not FDR. This is Henry Wallace without the Midwestern background. Well, very interesting that uh, Hakeem Jeffries is saying the AOC is too out there. There's a Democratic strategist in Nassau County, Long Island, who says that this AOC does not stand for the Democratic Party. She doesn't know what it's like to have Republicans you have to deal with. You can't have those policies and be successful. And we know they got blown out in Long Island. Lastly, Carl, what changed about Georgia as a state? Candidates aside, what does a Republican have to keep in mind now to be successful in Georgia? First of all, it's a very diverse state, so you have to have a very diverse uh, you know, set of candidates. Uh, and second of all, it is, it, it is drawing a lot of young people and a lot of people of color to Atlanta for the economic opportunity there. They, 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 they love the economic opportunity. They love the you know, sort of free market approach, but they are, you know, they, they're coming for the lifestyle and the quality of life, and, and they're suburbanites. And, you know, think about it. You've got, you've got uh, Purdue winning, almost getting, you know, 50 percent of the vote and avoiding a runoff, and you've got Donald Trump losing. And the gap between the two is an expression of people who say, I'm sort of economically conservative and I vote sort of Republican, but I, you know, I, I'm not for every Republican. And you got to worry about that in the South. You can't, you, we can't, as part of our coalition, lose 16 electoral votes in the heart of the Southeast, which I think will be 17 or 18 after, after the census. All right, we'll see. Uh, you got a, a dry run, uh, January 5th, and it's already heating up. You already have some heavyweights in there. And today during Fox and Friends, Lindsey Graham said, take a million of my dollars and put it to both Georgia Senate races. So it's more than symbolism. Carl, can't thank you enough. Thank you, sir. And in, in, in full disclosure, I'm helping raise money for the uh, effort in, uh, in Florida as chairman of a committee for the senatorial committee. So obligated in full disclosure. All right, Allison, do you have anything to add? Is this we're confessing everything? Eric, have you given any money to Carl? Nothing. All right, good. Now, we've cleansed our soul. Thank you, Carl. Thank you. At Carl Rove, follow him on Twitter, 1-866-408-7669. Back in a moment. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first, only on The Brian Kilmeade Show. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. The announcement was good news, although suspiciously staggered right after the election, given that Pfizer went to the FDA two weeks before the election, and the FDA actually wanted to sort of slow it down and said, go get more data to bring to us. Now that we have the information, that trial will close the next two weeks. The FDA will take two to three weeks to approve. Then the distribution will take two to three weeks, given that it requires deep freezing. And then once you get the second dose and the two-week immunity to respond to that second dose, we're looking at a February effect of staying on this time course. And I still believe that April will be the the month of mass vaccination in the United States. Ironically, we will be on the an accelerated downslope of the pandemic by that time. The next three to four months is going to be difficult and people should take mitigation seriously. Dr. Ma- uh, Marty McCarry this morning on Fox and Friends First, just talking about the, pop, the clear politics played out with uh, Pfizer. Plus, he dumped stock the, the day before. Unbelievable. And they could have announced this the week before. And they said quickly, we're not involved of Operation Warp Speed. Really? You were. They put $2.5 billion and invested into your product, your dosage. So that was wrong. Plain politics. Give it to Biden. They called Biden before they called Je- uh, Secretary of Home, uh, Health and Human Services first. He found out Monday. Biden found out Sunday. How wrong is that? Don, listen, on WNIS in Virginia Beach. Don. Brian, uh, to pick up on what you and uh, all were talking about, uh, the to me, the runoff elections uh, in Georgia are maybe even more important than the, uh, than the uh, presidential situation, because if by some chance um, the Democrats are successful in uh, uh, winning in both of those elections, we have a 50-50 tie with Kamala uh, breaking, breaking uh, it. Don, I'm with you, and you, you're ahead of the game. You're a smart guy. The Republicans only need one. Democrats need both. And it's winnable for either side. But the president could go in and lock it up for Republicans, and I hope he does. Coming up next, Jim Gray, one of the finest sportscasters in the country. Brand new book. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Coach Belichick and Mr. Kraft. Do you feel appreciated by them and do they have the appropriate gratitude for what you have achieved? I plead the fifth. (laughs) I think everybody in general wants to be appreciated more at work, you know, in their professional life. But there's a lot of people that are appreciate me more than way more than I ever thought, you know, was possible as part of my life. So so you you take it from them. Well, I think it's you know, I think it's you have different influences in your life. And I think the people that I work with, they're trying to get the best out of me. So they're trying to treat me in a way that they feel is going to get the best out of me. And, you know, I've got to get the best out of myself. 
So read between the lines. Tom Brady does not feel, I guess in Bill Belichick's case perhaps, that he was uh, appreciative of what he did for the franchise with the Super Bowls, the victories, and maybe with very, without the, a, lot, a lot of talent surrounding him that you would think Super Bowl champions or pretty Super Bowl contenders would have. Uh, but you got what he meant. He said, maybe Bill Belichick's being tough on me to get me better. Jim Gray is the one who asked those questions, and he asked Tom Brady questions every week uh, during the football season. He's author of a brand-new book called Talking to Goats, an acronym meaning greatest of all time. Uh, and that man you just heard from wrote the forward to Jim Gray's book. He's in multiple sports hall of fames. Jim Gray, welcome to the welcome back to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Brian, thank you. Good to be with you. So where were you? Set the scene when you were talking to Tom Brady. For that that, that bump in that oh, we just that had. Was at the, that was at the Milken Institute, the Milken Global Conference uh, a few years ago. Uh, uh, Mike Milken, who uh, puts on this global conference and, and gets uh, people from all walks of life, uh, Nobel Prize winners, presidents, uh, and so forth, puts on an amazing conference. Uh, and uh, I usually do a sports panel there. Uh, one or two for the conference uh, had Kobe Bryant in the past, uh, Jerry West, Bill Walton, Joe Torre, John Wooden, so forth. And so Tom was the guest that year. Right. No doubt about it. Tom made the cut for the book, Greatest of All Time. I don't really think people debate that much anymore. Who's the greatest quarterback ever, uh, despite last weekend, uh, and what he's doing at 43. Jim, when you finally got done with this book, did you have more of an appreciation from the journey you've been on? Did you discover anything about yourself as you look back at some of the great moments and the great people that you've interviewed? Well, yeah, just that it all happened, Brian. And, and when you put it all together and, you know, you don't necessarily just think about it on a day-to-day basis. You're just going about your life and living and, and trying to do the best you can in your job and with your family and so forth. So uh, when you go back and you review, you know, tens of thousands of events and interviews and uh, start digging through the uh, – tapes and transcripts and in your memory and, and notes and um, uh, all the stuff that you've uh, accumulated over that time. And I had tremendous help. Uh, Greg Bishop, a great writer from Sports Illustrated, uh, wrote the book with me, and uh, he was just uh, fantastic in how he organized it all and uh, got it down on paper and, and made, it come, made it come to life. And, and uh, uh, I'm so grateful to him. So we have an hour special. I was lucky enough to come out and interview you for an hour special. It's going to be on Fox News, 10 o'clock Sunday. And then Fox Nation will have the expanded version, which you're not going to – if you even remotely like sports or you, like, you recognize some great moments in sports, you will not be able to pull you away from this special because, Jim, you provided a lot of the footage too. You even have uh, a 10-year-old uh, Tiger Woods where you interviewed him uh, and could, maybe you could set the scene of when you came across this a young phenom who lived up to the hype. I uh, was uh, moved out to Los Angeles and uh, was here for the Olympics, uh, working on the official film of the uh, 1984 Olympics with Bud Greenspan and was a freelancer uh, in sports, uh, including freelancing for ESPN. And I saw in the old Herald Examiner uh, that there was a, a eight- or nine-year-old Eldrick Woods had hit his third hole-in-one uh, at Cypress Club uh, in Southern California on whatever the number was, you know, using a six iron on the par three, fifth hole or whatever it was. And I, I looked at that and I said, this has got to be a misprint. You know, there's no nine-year-old who's doing this. Uh, just can't be that he had that many. Uh, so I cut it out, and the old agate type used to be uh, the transactions where you could get everything. It was one-stop shopping. You'd find out who was traded, who was hired, yeah. who was fired for hockey, basketball, baseball, and, and golf, and so forth. 
called down there to John Allen's mo, who was the head pro. And I said, is this true? Is there somebody named Eldrick Woods who's down there at all? Yep, he's here every day. I said, really, do you think uh, I could come down there and, and, and uh, interview him? He said, well, as far as the course is concerned, that would be fine, and I'll make myself available too. But as far as the young man is concerned, and he called him Tiger, he said everybody calls him Tiger, you'd have to ask his dad, who's here with him every day. So hired a camera crew myself and went down there and asked uh, Earl Woods, who was Tiger's father, and he said, sure. And uh, so during that, we uh, uh, taped him, you know, hitting golf balls for quite a while and in the sand trap and putting and so on and so forth. And it was truly remarkable and did the interview. And in that interview, uh, Tiger said, you know, one day he, he, he hopes to win all the majors and beat all the pros, uh, became a very famous uh, <laughs> uh, line of Tiger's uh, later on in his life, in his life when he uh, uh, did in fact do that. And uh, I also asked him, uh, Brian, could I be his caddy? And he asked me if I could read greens, and he said, sure, but just the basic 10%. So we've often <laughs> ah. uh, laughed about that over the years. It, it was a big financial uh, mistake by me not to do that. Right, and I just one thing that <laughs> <laughs> you should have. You, you could have been fluff before fluff, uh, but you were a little Correct. thinner. Um, but a couple of things uh, come to mind, Jim, is that when I read this book, you're a guy that's always open, always asks the questions, always curious, but you also seem to break through with these guys. And even that question to Tom Brady that you just asked him, you're friends with him. He probably doesn't want that. He knows the answer, if you ask me, is probably Belichick doesn't appreciate what I've done. I think Kraft probably does. And, and he probably, you ask him tough questions, and he says that. We're friends, but you'll still, when it comes to Kobe Bryant, when it comes to Tiger Woods, you still, you'll still ask these guys the tough questions that a lot of times in Mike Tyson's case, too, might make them uncomfortable. Is that tough? Well, no. I mean, I, I, I think I think you have to do that, and and all of these guys are aware of that when they agreed to do the interview, Brian. You know, you have to be able to ask them what has gone on and transpired in the game that they have just played, or or what's what's coming up in front of them. You know, so as long as it's on the field of play, yeah. You know, you know, I said this uh, a couple of years ago. We we're doing a roundtable with Mike Tyson at the International Boxing Hall of Fame, and he was, you know, nice enough to come up there and and do my induction. And and somebody asked that question you just asked, and I and I hadn't thought of it after all these years until then. And I said, you know, Mike Tyson has just been hit 150 times in the head by Evander Holyfield. Tom Brady's been sacked four times by Michael Strahan. Um, Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant have had their foot stepped on. They've been elbowed all game. Um, do you really think that anything that I can say to them about that performance is offensive? more offensive than being hit in the head by the guy <laughs> and their opponent if they can't take this question <laughs> how did they ever face the guy who was in front of them or so, the team absolutely and mike tyson's coming back again and, and now he's in his 50 i think 53 so one of the, the one of the things that sticks out about the book is not only the great people you interview but the great moments that you covered one of which was a holyfield tyson rematch i'll play some of this cut 45 Second time, and it is all out I can't believe what I'm seeing, fellas. Bills Lane signaling that it's over. I think they've just about had enough. Tyson showing desperation and fighting Holyfield. And that, <laughs> everyone remembers that fight. You said to me, uh, when chaos started breaking out in the ring and Tyson bites Holyfield's ear, you went right to the ref. You said, nobody ever hits the ref. <laughs> well, if you stand next to Mills Lane, you know, 
police were in there, and they were pulling their billy clubs, and Mike still wanted to fight. He was going after Holyfield. He was going after the trainers, uh, perhaps with some of the sheriffs. If you stand next to the referee in Mills Lane, no fighter, nobody in any sport. If you hit a referee, you will never fight again. If you do it in football or basketball or baseball with the umpire, you'll never play again. So I thought that was the safest place because Mike's not going to come over here. I mean, something could spill out of control and immediately could happen. But if you're next to him, I didn't think there was going to be any possible way that he was going to be bothering with Mills Lane. So that's what I did. Jim Gray with us now. His book, Talking to Goats, you got it. Download it. you got to go buy it if you love sports and want the inside story of events that you think you know everything. So Jim Gray, probably one of the finest moments, if you ask me, and I think you might be agree with me, is you your goal after that, even though Holyfield technically won, go get Tyson. So you told Don King, I need to speak to Tyson. King goes and delivers Tyson. And to Tyson's credit, he comes out. Here's a little of that interview. Cut 47. Mill said he stopped the fight. You bit him. Was that a retaliation for the eye when you bit him in his ear? Regardless of what I did, he bit me for two fights. But you got to address it, Mike. Why I did, did you address it? No, I did address it. I addressed it in the ring. Why, why did you do that, though, Mike? I mean, was look that the proper me. response? Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. I got to go home. My kids are going to be scared of me. Look at me, man. You were not scared. Yeah, even though he obviously could destroy you or anybody around and would take on a fighter like that, you were able to look him in the eye and ask the next question. How tough was that? Well, you know, you, you, when I look back at it, I wonder how I did that. You know, I, I, you know, how, <laughs> what was I thinking that he could have easily just, you know, uh, hauled off there? But I've never felt in peril with Mike. I've never felt in peril with any of the fighters that they were going to hit me. Um I think you just have to do it. You're, 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 you're not thinking of that. You're thinking about what just happened. And, you know, you want, you're curious. I'm curious. Uh, the people that I work with, you don't want to let them down. And, and the audience, they paid, you know, whatever it was back then, 60 bucks, yep. to watch the fight. And the fight's ended now because this guy bit another guy's ear twice. So right. uh, <laughs> I think you just kind of go forward and, 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 and do it. And, you know, I, I've, I've always just been, you know, Glad I didn't screw that up because that would have been I would have I would have had a hard time living with myself if I had messed that up and it was one of these interviews which happens so so rarely you know right even though you do thousands of them where you got it all right you didn't stumble you didn't think of another line you didn't think I didn't follow up there uh, and the production by Showtime was just fantastic and David Dinkins the producer he wasn't in my ear he trusted me to to get it done so. You know, it all worked well in, in that instance, even though it was a, a horrible moment for Mike in boxing. And then you again did all the interviews after, followed up, and you're still friends with Mike today when he went to prison. He'll write about it in the book, how he wrote you a letter, and it's just fascinating. So that's the story. You think you know Tyson, but you don't know it from Jim Gray's perspective. Jim, another great moment. You're at the, your career's going fantastic. Everybody wants you in the dugout, on the sideline, ringside. And then you have an opportunity in a World Series game to, to interview anyone you want and the top players of all time, the all-century team. And the one that you're assigned to is Pete Rose. He's on, the first, he's on the field, baseball field, for the first time since his suspension. You had told me later, and you talk about it in the special, that you didn't know about all the drama and Ted Williams coming out in a wheelchair and had the, the music, and everyone was caught up in the moment. And when you had a chance to interview Pete Rose on the field, you thought to yourself, hey, I might get him to admit he better on baseball, which we all know later he'd write a book about, and admit he did. Here's the moment. Cut 52. 
Pete, congratulations. It was quite an ovation. Pete, let me ask you now. It seems as though that there is an opening. The American public is very forgiving. Are you willing to show contrition, admit that you bet on baseball, and make some sort of an apology? Not at all, Jim. Not at all. Uh, I'm not going to admit something that didn't happen. I, I know you get tired of hearing me say that. But, but the uh, overwhelming evidence no, that is in that report, why not make that uh, step with this opening? This is too much of a festive night to worry about that. I mean, I... Because I don't know what evidence you're talking about. Sign a paper uh, acknowledging the ban. Why did you sign it if you didn't agree to yeah, be banned Yeah, but it also, it also says I can apply for reinstatement after one year. You have applied for reinstatement in yeah. 1997. Have you heard back from Commissioner Selig? Uh, no, but uh, uh, I hope to someday. And it went on, and afterwards, the backlash was pretty extensive. Not that the questions were wrong, but you even look back and, and say, well, man, maybe I, that wasn't the right moment, right? Well, that's that, that's what it was, you know, and, and you just alluded to it, Brian. Uh, you know, the melancholy feeling and the heartwarming feeling that everybody at home was having, you know, seeing Ted Williams and Sandy Colfax and uh, Frank Robinson and Stan Musial and all these great, great players and the ovation of Hank Aaron and, and you know, and the, the triumph uh, and the beautiful voice of Ben Scully and the trumpets and the cymbals. Well, I was in the, in the dugout uh, next to the Yankees in the Yankees dugout. And from where I was, you know, you couldn't – I wasn't watching television, which was a huge mistake because we're on television. So I wasn't getting that same feeling. It fell a little flat other than the ovations for Pete Rose, which was astounding and a, a huge ovation, and, and for Hank Aaron, who obviously was a, an, an Atlanta Brave. Other than that, you just didn't have the same feeling that people were having that warmth uh, at home from where I was. So then – you know, I come on, and we had all discussed it at NBC, everybody in the broadcast, uh, from Dick Ebersall, who was the chairman, who was just fantastic to me, uh, uh, to, you know, the producer, Sam Flood, and uh, Bob Costas, Joe Morgan, Bob Uecker. You know, we all had had a meeting, and, and this is what we thought we should be doing, and it just kind of careened out of control. But had I been watching better television and and when i was able to review it i saw how how right. at that time and that tone that was jarring so so jim is just this is what i love about the book the most is that you know these great moments and it's great to recount them but you show your human side you need to say hey i'm not perfect this went exceedingly well this is a relationship i'm proud of and this is an interview i wish i could have back then my pete rose became the good guy and everyone was targeting you. The Yankees blew you off, and you talk about that in the World Series where they chose not to speak to you afterwards. And uh, that's going to be in the special. Also in the special, real quick, Jim, you talked to Pete Rose for the first time in 21 years about that moment. Correct. And we had uh, not uh, obviously done an interview before. I, I used to do the Phillies pregame show, and I was a regular guest on Pete's radio show when he had it. So uh, we've probably done somewhere between 70 to 100 interviews over the course of the years. And after 21 years, so we got together a couple of weeks ago in Las Vegas for the special uh, on Sunday night on Fox News, uh, which you were so kind enough to uh, to host. And uh, it's a really interesting interview, and and it, I'm I'm glad that Pete did it. It, it was good for uh, me to sit down with him, and we had a great conversation. And, and you're going to see uh, you're going to see it uh, on Sunday night at 10 o'clock Eastern. But uh, I think that people will uh, really. Uh, really have interest in what Pete has to say about where his life is now and, and about that interview. Yep, you break some news as usual. Uh, Jim Gray, the book is called Talking to Ghosts. Listen, everyone's tired of politics. Take a break. <laughs> Listen to this. Jim, you also talk about your uh, interaction with the presidents. There's so much to get to. I'd love to have you back again to continue all the books out. Jim Gray, thanks so much. 
Brian, thanks for having me. Thanks for doing the special, and I appreciate you, and thanks for the time. You got it. Back in a moment. Every big-name opinion maker eventually makes their way to our microphones because Brian asks the tough questions and even some easy ones. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Chad, tell us about that pitch. I I can't do it. You know, as a team, we kind of decided that, you know, we uh, because of what happened with Pete, we're we're not going to talk out here on the field. I do want to say that was for you, though, Grandma. Thanks. Chad, you don't want to talk about the home run? All right, Bob, back upstairs to you. So here he is in the World Series the day after the, all, the, the game in which he had the Pete Rose interview. All the Yankees are mad at him. They tell him to get out of the dugout. And Chad Curtis, a, a not well-known Yankee, has a game-winning hit in the World Series. He stood there through the commercial just to blow Jim Gray off on television. That, that's bold. That's nuts. And then the Yankees don't want to talk to him at all. Dick Ebersole tries to convince him that I've got to talk to him. And then he's at night. He doesn't know what he's going to do. He thinks his career might be over. And then George Steinbrenner knocks on his door. And he gets the door. And he's like, I just want to tell you, Jim, uh, we are sorry. I am sorry what happened. The Yankees will talk to you, and you will hand out the trophy. If, you, if we win, we're lucky enough to win, you will you'll hand out the trophy and do the interviews at the World Series. You got my word on that. So whatever you want to say about Steinbrenner, uh, who is the Donald Trump of sports owners, he stood up for him there. Isn't that great? That's an incredible story. Yeah. The name of the book is called Talking to Goats, and the special with Jim Gray is on Fox Nation. You will love it. The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox & Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.